0: Welcome to the You Love and You Learn podcast, the place to learn about all things love, relationships, relationship anxiety, and to deconstruct the one-size-fits-all narrative of what it means to be in a happy relationship. I'm your host, Sarah Yudkin, a relationship anxiety coach who's on a mission to discuss the nuances of love and relationships that I wish someone would have shared with me years ago. My goal with each episode is for you to leave with an expanded definition of love and relationships and with practices to carry with you in your life and relationships on a day-to-day basis. I'm so grateful to have you here. Welcome back to another episode. I'm excited to share today's conversation with you. In it, I got to sit down with Dr. Molly Burritz, who is a clinical psychologist licensed in the state of California with 15 years of experience practicing psychotherapy, conducting psychological research, and teaching psychology at the undergraduate and graduate levels. She runs a private practice in the LA area where she treats couples as well as women experiencing anxiety, depression, and reproductive concerns. She also serves as an associate Editor for the Encyclopedia of Couple and Family Therapy, and her work has been published in books and scientific journals about relationship issues and couples therapy. And I absolutely loved getting the chance to sit down with Dr. Molly. She has so much wisdom to share. And the topic of today's conversation is all about healthy relationships. So, what is a healthy relationship? How do you know if your relationship is healthy? What are some things that maybe people worry are signs of an unhealthy relationship, but might not actually be? How do you listen? to relationship advice online that tries to say this is healthy this is unhealthy and all of that good stuff i know this conversation has been long overdue and really loved getting the chance to explore this more so thank you so much for listening and let's get to it hi molly thank you so much for joining me on the podcast thanks so much for having me I'm really excited for this topic today because it's a really common question, not only in my community of many who identify with relationship anxiety, but I think it's just such a common thing for. People to worry about as a human. And so I like to bring those subjects to light. So just to give everyone a sneak peek, we're going to be diving into kind of the dynamic of what makes up a healthy relationship, signs of potential unhealthy patterns in relationships, and how to kind of parse out for yourself of what advice maybe to listen to or what messages to listen to because there can be such conflicting messages of what is or isn't healthy. So how do you decide for yourself what's working or not? So really excited to get into that. And before we we do, I feel like it would be helpful just to hear a little bit more about kind of what made you passionate about relationships and what led you to want to help other people with their own lives or relationships as a therapist.
1: Yeah, I, I love this question because I think the things that we're most passionate about often come from a very sort of emotional core place and um, oftentimes in our childhood. And I really had a sort of preoccupation with relationships from the time I was a kid. Um, I think I had a lot of anxiety about relationships ending and starting. I had a lot of separation anxiety when I was a very little kid. And as I grew up, I think that separation anxiety kind of translated into some of my other relationships. But I remember going to walking to the bookstore in our neighborhood when I was like 10 years old, always going to the self-help aisle (laughs) and reading books in the self-help aisle. I remember going back and forth multiple times to read the entirety of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. (laughs) And I also remember kind of putting the book inside another book because I think even then, although I couldn't name it, I internalized that there was stigma about, you know, psychology. um, I think a lot more so then than there is now, thank goodness. But I think it's really unusual for a 10-year-old to do that. I didn't realize that at the time, but I know that now. So it's always been something that's of interest for me and really was my dream career. I wanted to work with couples. I wanted to specialize with couples. And I especially love, you know, when I'm working with individuals, I love working with women because I think women carry so much of the weight when it comes to relationship functioning. And um, it's a lot to carry. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It can be a very powerful experience, but also a lot of stuff to carry like you said. So, it's really helpful to have support navigating that, especially if I know you've talked about on your Instagram before the myth of like women having it all and doing it all, and we won't go too far down that path today so people can check out, you know, your page and and check that out if they're interested in that, but I really do think that there are these gender stereotypes that have been around for so long and that that women can be in these roles. And I primarily in my Instagram community and on my podcast, it's 95% or so women who are listening. And so I do like to speak to some of those mindsets. So I'm glad that you'll be bringing that perspective into our conversation.
1: Yeah. And I'm honestly, I'm so grateful that there's so much content online about these topics, you know, just In the past 10 years, it's completely exploded. And I think especially millennials, but especially Gen X are really benefiting from the amount of content that's available to them in digestible format. Now, I think the kind of negative side of it is that if you're a person who has relationship anxiety with so much content out there, it can be really easy to perseverate. And that means to sort of get stuck in that hamster wheel of trying to find the answers over and over and over and over again. And it can be tough to sort through what's legit, what's not, what matters for me and what's not applicable to me. So I think what you're doing specifically is so important because it helps people kind of parse that out and figure it out for themselves.
0: Yeah, I try, but I really do think that because relationships are so subjective, it's more about, and I'm sure this is something you believe strongly as a therapist as well, it's like empowering people to make those best decisions for themselves, but trying to give them enough new context or nuance to at least see different sides of something that they may not have seen before. So since you teed it off so perfectly, maybe it's good for us to kind of start there with how there is so much information out there online and, you know, the format that gets boosted a lot by the algorithm and actually a post that (laughs) inspired this conversation is content like, seven signs of a healthy relationship or on the flip side, seven warnings that you might be in a toxic relationship. And I think that these bite-sized pieces of information are wonderful because they give you something to think about, but without maybe a follow-up podcast episode or without getting to sit down and talk through it with a coach or a therapist, it can be hard to parse out what to listen to and what not to listen to. So we're going to go in later into some examples of healthy patterns or unhealthy patterns in a relationship. But if you're someone who's listening to this conversation right now, you're scrolling through social media, and maybe you lean a little bit more anxious, like you said, and tend to perseverate on different posts like this, like, am I doing this right? How do I know? What advice to listen to, especially if there's conflicting information, what insight or wisdom can you offer somebody in that position?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, so the first thing is, you want to vet your source, you know, so take a look at somebody's credentials and training. There's a difference between You know, a a college student going on and talking about their experience versus someone who is really educated or credentialed or degreed in these areas. Now, that's not to say that a college student's opinion and experience isn't valid. It's just that it might not be rooted in science, it might not be rooted in broader theory. It might really be rooted just in their experience. So it might be less likely to translate to other people's experience. So I really do think it's important and love that people are sharing personal anecdotes. But I think the sort of danger of that can be, you know, if you believe that everything that you hear online is true and you don't have a system for kind of checking it, that can lead you down the wrong road, right? So I think really paying attention to someone's credentials, especially if someone is licensed and if they have training, that's super helpful. Um, I also think people who kind of can cite their sources, like where they found this information, how they know this information, that helps as well. But certainly it's, it's a complicated process because there is so much out there. So I would say if you hear or read something that sounds suspect or iffy to you, do your homework and see what's behind it.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I can maybe share even a personal example of competing information that in some ways is both true but also needs more context so I was going to bring this into the discussion later but I'm just rolling with what comes to me you had you had something on your page that I loved which was some examples of things that you know some people might question if they're unhealthy like you might hear a relationship coach saying if there's not feelings of in love or connection with your partner all the time then that relationship is lacking polarity or it's lacking enough you know connection and chemistry and that person could be let's say a credited coach and mm-hmm. then there could be advice on the other side and I love that you brought this to your page which is like it's normal to have dry spells sometimes it's normal to not have full feelings of in love every moment of every day and so I gravitate towards your message cuz that's the beliefs that I have now cultivated but in some ways There is some truth to both of those people's story or experience. Like some people really believe that you need to have more uh, physical chemistry or connection to be in that relationship. But in some ways, that's personal preference. So how might someone parse out if there's two, I'm just going to put in air quotes, like trusted for all things considered resources, but maybe they're not sure which one actually feels authentic to them in that moment.
1: Yeah, this that's such a good example. Uh, so let, let's take the dry spell example. So I think you want to look one at the length of a relationship, okay? If your relationship is two years long and the entire time or for 18 months of that relationship, there's been a sexual problem, whether that's a problem of desire, or a problem of dysfunction that has led to a dry spell for that period. This, of course, really needs attention. Does it mean you're in the wrong relationship? Not necessarily. But in such a short relationship, are you and your partner prepared to do what it would take to really address that, which is an overarching, broad-themed problem that has transpired for most of the relationship? Yep. So how long has this been going on? What portion of the relationship has this been going on for, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, you take that exact same time frame of the problem, let's say 18 months, and you apply that to a couple that's been together, married for 20 years. You've got a much different scenario here. What mm-hmm. you're looking at is still something that may deserve attention, but you have a long, long history of things working well, And so it's more about what has changed in this time and what do we want to address about what has changed rather than is there some fundamental incompatibility issue, right? Mm -hmm. So a big part is looking at the problem in the context of the relationship. Has this always been a problem? What is the degree of distress that it's creating, right? So there's kind of two parts of the distress, one is the distress that we actually feel at not having sex and how that makes us feel and how that impacts our life. The other is the distress about how we feel about having the problem. Mm-hmm. So I'm anxious about the fact that I'm not having sex. And mm-hmm. those are two very different things, right? There's the pri- what I call the primary pain, which is the pain of not getting what you want. If what you want is sex and you're not getting that, how does that impact you? And then there's the secondary pain, which is the pain of how you feel about the fact that you're not getting it. Mm-hmm. And for many of us, that's anxious, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to really take a look at the primary pain. How much distress is this problem creating you? And if it's really high, whether the relationship is short or long, It's something that needs to be paid attention to. Mm -hmm. But see if you can parse out, okay, what distress am I feeling because of this actual problem? And what distress am I feeling because of my feelings about having the problem? And that's Mm. a very different story.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can relate, especially with this sex example, to the secondary problem. And I think a lot of people with anxiety can relate to anxiety about the anxiety, fear of the fear, judgment Mm -hmm. about their judgment. It's like the cyclical nature of those feelings. But especially with this sex example, I've kind of joked before and I sometimes feel a little bit vulnerable talking about this, but that's how you reduce shame, right? Is just saying the thing that needs to be said. But Nate and I sometimes joke, like we have a six out of 10 sex life. And Mm -hmm. as a perfectionist, I'm like, that's not good enough. You know, It (laughs) needs to be a 10 out of 10. And there's been definite phases where it has been closer to a 10. And phases where it's maybe closer to a six. So, my confidence that we would be able to have our ebbs and flows of that is high. That's why I don't get too distressed. But in an anxious moment, the distress that like periods of less sex causes me, like physically, is actually not so much the anxiety about should I be doing it more or less, or is this bad or wrong, is way higher. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really glad you brought that point up. And just another thing that I heard in what you were saying is like, this can be a way for someone to kind of check in with themselves if advice they're hearing about an unhealthy or healthy dynamic is relevant for them is Is this actually causing me distress or is this causing the collective within the relationship enough distress that it feels like an important topic? Because there could be people that are like, I actually am asexual. That doesn't really affect me at all. So hearing the advice that you should be doing this this amount of times really doesn't matter for me, whereas someone else, it could be a really big value for them. And so that could be helpful to parse out which advice feels more relevant to them.
1: Yeah. I love that you shared the six out of 10. I just, I want to throw out there that that sounds so reasonable to me. Six out of 10 sounds great to me. It's really hard to imagine. You know, I've been in my relationship for over 15 years. It's really hard to imagine how life would keep running and working if my sex life, my sex life and my relationship were a 10 out of 10. Mm -hmm. That would require a lot of me all the time and other parts of my life need attention too, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's wonderful that you have had experiences where you know you can have 10 out of 10 days, right? 10 out of 10. Interludes, but that it ebbs and flows. You know that it can be better sometimes, it can be worse sometimes, and kind of going with that, letting it ebb and flow, being confident that the waves will come, the waves will crash, the waves will go. That's where I think something really reasonable lies. And that's, I think it's something that's maintainable, especially with people who have kids. Six out of 10 sounds very reasonable, given that you have to have bandwidth for so many other things in your life. I really paid attention to your languaging as you were describing this. And two words really stuck out for me. I heard the should language and I heard the want language. Mm -hmm. There is a very big difference between I want to be having more sex and I should be having more sex. Mm -hmm. And I think if you can hone in on those words, that's how you determine is this primary pain or is this secondary pain? Mm -hmm. Because wanting to have more sex and not getting it, that's primary pain. Thinking you should be having more sex and you're not having it, that's secondary pain. That's Mm -hmm. thinking you should be doing something is not the same as wanting to be doing something. You know, Mm -hmm. I know that I should be exercising five times a week. That doesn't mean that I want to be exercising five times a week. And um, we, I think with, with topics like this that are very stigmatized and very personal, like especially sex, we really get confused whether it's want or should, because we have been so brainwashed to accept the culture of should, that Mm. we almost can't even figure out what we want anymore.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's so relevant to this conversation. So before we dive into maybe some examples of unhealthy patterns or healthy patterns, you know, with that notion of parsing out what is a want versus what is a should, how do you normally support your clients with these types of, whether it's a question they can ask themselves or a tool to like kind of pause and check in, how are you guiding people towards more self-awareness of those differences?
1: Yeah. So I think oftentimes the way we determine our shoulds is that we compare ourselves to other people. Mm -hmm. So I might say, if you found out, you know, let's say someone is saying, I'm only having sex once a month and I should be having sex more. I will say, if you found out that in your whole group of friends, the average amount that people were having sex was about one, once a month, how often would you want to have sex? Mm-hmm. So normalize your own experience, compare it to other people's. Imagine that other people are having a similar experience to you and then see how you feel. Because if, if I'm imagining that all my friend group is having sex about once a month and I'm thinking, oh my God, that is not enough. These poor people, I want to have it a lot more. Then you're really clear. This is a Mm want. I want to have sex more than once a month. But if it's a relief, oh my gosh, everyone else is only having sex once a month too. I feel so much better. Then it's like, oh, it's probably a should. If you compare yourself to other people and normalize the experience, then it can really clarify what is a should and what is a want. Mm, I love that. I think that's such a helpful,
0: like, I don't ever know whether to use the word like tool or practice or just idea. But yeah. I think that action of really comparing to if you were the average amount, yeah. then how would you feel about it is so helpful, because most people that come to me, and I'm sure you, they feel like they are so far from normal. When we both have kind of the insight of what everyone else is telling us behind the scenes. And we're like, trust me, you're not abnormal in so much of what you're sharing. And even if there was something that was not exactly like other people's experience, there's something so similar. So we all have such common patterns and themes.
1: Yes. And isn't it so frequent that people ask you, what is the average da-da-da? And whatever the question is about, it's always about comparing yourself to someone else to determine whether something is wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what it's always about. And there are times when that is helpful. There really are. Sometimes you really need to understand the baseline to really sort yourself around it. But more often than not, we're doing it to determine where we stand in line compared to other people to determine how much shame or guilt we should have about something. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to help people let that go.
0: (laughs) Yes, me too. I cannot agree more with that. So you mentioned the word baseline just now. I think this would be a good time to segue Mm -hmm. into potentially what is some of like the baseline behaviors that one should either, I guess I'll, I'll see which question feels more interesting to you. What are like key things that would be unhealthy behaviors that people should know are like, that is pretty clear cut unhealthy to be mindful of. Or another way of asking that would be what are kind of baseline behaviors that should um, be in a healthy relationship Mm -hmm. for you to feel Good about it, and I'll give the quick disclaimer that we're not talking about abusive relationships here. That is something that you have given disclaimers about on your page before, and I give it on mine very often. So let's not even bring that into the conversation because I think that. Maybe we can clearly establish like what we mean by abuse so people know that for context, but I don't want to spend too much time on those things because I think that most times people are coming from the anxious perspective. It, they're kind of nitpicking things that are not in that abuse category. So that was a long worded way of asking if you want to kind of dive into focusing on things that feel more of the baseline
1: for a healthy
0: or baseline as watch out for unhealthy yeah. patterns.
1: Yeah. And maybe another time we really can have that conversation about what is abusive versus what is not abusive, because that's a very important conversation, yeah. but it's a, it's a much bigger, longer conversation. Right. Yeah. And I, I want people to have that information. So let's imagine. That let's imagine that folks are not in an, in abusive relationships right now. And if you have any inkling that you are, let's put this on hold for you for a minute, right? So in healthy relationships, one, you want to feel like you can express how you feel. Now, does this mean that you'll never have any anxiety over saying something vulnerable? Of course Not. I've been with my husband for 15 years and I still get nervous to tell him something that I know is going to make me vulnerable, okay? But in general, I have a feeling that I can share my real feelings with my husband. Mm-hmm. I don't walk around feeling like I need to hide how I feel or cover up how I feel in order to keep the peace, right? I want people to be in relationships where they can express a range of emotions and have there be a place for them. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's really healthy. Now. That doesn't mean that you should be able to express your emotions however you want to express them. That doesn't mean it's okay to go into your partner's workplace and start screaming at them in their office. It doesn't mean that you can barge in on someone when they're, you know, having downtime and say, I'm so pissed off. We're talking about this right here and right now. So here's where that context comes into play. It's okay to feel how you feel, but it's not okay to act however you want to. Act So I want folks to be in relationships where they have the freedom to feel how they feel and where there is some, there are some boundaries around acting how they want to act. Right. And that's an interesting balance, but I think that's a really important distinction to start with.
0: Yeah. A couple follow-up questions on that first on like the healthy side of things. And then maybe we can, what we can do maybe is flip to what the unhealthy version of that behavior could look like for people to be mindful of. So when it comes to relationship anxiety, if you're having, let's say doubt, because there's a moment where you're not attracted to your partner. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people question, like, should I be able to share all of my intrusive thoughts with my partner and my take on that is that to kind of pause and check in of like the intention are you looking to connect and help your partner understand you or are you just trying to kind of like dump something now that doesn't mean you shouldn't feel like again you're walking on eggshells around your partner you should feel Like they are able to support you, but I kind of want to bring that question in of like, if you have something that's more sensitive, how do you recommend still being able to express your feelings without hurting your partner um, by saying something that might be like, I don't want to say like questionable, but it's like, it's just an anxious feeling that you don't necessarily want them to fully understand.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I love your, I love you bringing the word intention and that's a great starting place. So I think you ask yourself a question and you say, for whose benefit would I be sharing this information? And sometimes you want to share difficult information because it's for your partner's benefit or for the relationship's benefit, right? Mm -hmm. And those are important things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you want to share something And it's truly just for your benefit. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, but if the benefit that it will give you is it will make you feel less anxious or it will make you feel less guilty, that I want to have you take a second look at. Mm -hmm. Because we are responsible for managing ourselves, managing our anxiety, managing our emotions. It doesn't mean that we can never share these parts of ourselves with our partner. But it does mean that there should be a filtering process where before we go to our partner with every single thing that makes us feel anxious, we want to be trying to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. How can I cope with this feeling on my own? What would I get out of this by sharing it with my partner? Am I really just looking to offload some anxiety? If that's the case, what can I do for myself first to address that anxiety? Before I recruit my partner in solving that anxiety with me. Mm -hmm. Now, believe me, I'm a really big fan of these interdependent relationships where we really rely on one another for soothing to get our attachment needs met. And so I'm not saying you can't express your anxious feelings to your partner. I'm just saying they can't be the first line of defense all the time. You want to take responsibility for self-soothing when you can and reserve those times when you're having difficulty regulating for your partner so that you don't overwhelm them. And also so that you don't become codependent and constantly relying on them for reassurance. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I love the nuance you added there about how, of course, it's okay to have some reassurance from your partner and to rely on people that's an important part of being in relationship with people. However, if they're the first or maybe even only line of defense, that's when it can maybe wear down the emotional connection. So with that said, you just established that there is a healthy dynamic when you feel like you can share things with partner. If the flip side of that was to be discussed, what would be the potential unhealthy pattern for people to look out for? That's opposite of this healthy habit.
1: Yeah, I think if you're, if every time you're anxious about something, your immediate response is to go to your partner for reassurance, that's going to drain a relationship really quickly. Okay. Um, it's going to put your partner in more of a caregiving role than anybody should really be in for another adult, especially for a mutual partner. And that's the quickest way to kill a sex life. I'll tell you that, is to put your partner or act in a caregiving role. That really chips away at desire when you start having to take care of someone as a general stance or a general dynamic in the relationship. Mm. So I think really being intentional about taking responsibility for meeting your own needs, self-soothing, empower yourself by getting the tools that you need to address your anxiety and then recruit your partner in that from time to time, you know, in those more difficult moments or when you're really struggling.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And another potential opposite of being able to fully express yourself might be, I imagine if you feel like you can't, share anything with your partner you feel like you have to be constantly walking on eggshells or you feel judged or shamed or maybe even like your partner could lash out if you're bringing some of these things to the table so i think that's potentially dipping into more of like the verbal or emotional abuse category i'd love to do a part two eventually to actually Mm -hmm. fully dive into this and what we can do is maybe add some resources in the show notes for people if they're listening and they are kind of on the fence about that. But I imagine that's kind of where it starts dipping into potential verbal or emotional abuse if you can't safely express something.
1: Yeah. Uh, thank you for bringing it back to that because that's absolutely right. When it, when it's unhealthy, it can look like oversharing or undersharing because you're walking on eggshells afraid of your partner's response. Some, for some of us, Our partners don't actually have problematic responses, but we anticipate that they will. Or maybe we have a history with parents or caregivers or a previous partner who really didn't allow for our voice to be heard. And so we make assumptions about what's acceptable and what's okay in our relationship. And we censor ourselves, even though our partner might actually be really open to hearing our experience mm-hmm. so that's another thing to take a look at too is hmm whose problem really is this am i having this walking on eggshells experience because of things my partner has actually done or said or is this about a previous hurtful experience in my life and i'm operating from that mindset now
0: hmm yep yeah, that's a great consideration One other pillar, I guess, of a healthy relationship that we kind of talked about some of these beforehand for those listening. So I'm going to maybe just bring this one now into the conversation to see your thoughts on it, Molly. But the, the pillar of kind of supporting each other and maintaining healthy relationships with others, and I'll add into the mix, like having a mix of independent time as well as you know, interdependent time. I think those things are related because if you encourage relationships with others and activities with other people, then you're also allowing there to be this balance of time spent together and apart. So if someone's listening and they're like, well, what is a healthy amount of time or what is a healthy consideration for how much time or what activities I do with or without my partner and with different people or not? How should they think about this subject?
1: Yeah, this it's such a hard one because uh, probably like you too, Sarah, people always ask me, how much is it okay for my partner to be with their friends, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I I just, I want to give people a concrete answer so badly. And I hate having to say every time it depends because that's so unsatisfying when to someone when they're feeling anxious, you know? But for me to say anything other than that would really be a miss, because it really does depend. It depends what phase of your life you're in. It depends what other responsibilities and obligations you have. It depends how much trust is in the relationship and whether trust has been broken or betrayed right? So there's lots of things to consider, but this is one of those times where you really need to dig in and look at primary pain versus secondary pain. Mm -hmm. Is my partner, let's take just spending time with friends, for example, is my partner spending so much time with his friends that our relationship is truly being impacted? There's no space left for me. There's no quality time left for us. What I get of him is the leftovers. He's already kind of expended all his energy and had all his fun. And then he comes home to me, and I just kind of get what's left. And what's left is not very satisfying, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm noticing that, like, there's not much joy in my relationship, but my partner experiences a lot of joy when in having time with her friends, that's something to take a look at. What's going on there? Those are all points of primary pain that my relationship is being impacted by your relationships with these other people and the amount of effort you're putting in with them versus what you're putting in with me. That's Mm -hmm. primary pain. And that really deserves your attention Mm -hmm. because you are worth having a partner who is invested in you, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. but then there's secondary pain, which is. When my partner is with their friends, I'm worried they're having more fun with them than they have with me. Mm -hmm. When my partner is with their friends, I'm worried that they're going to be talking to another person of interest Mm -hmm. um, while they're out and about. Even if you have no evidence that that person has been unfaithful or Mm -hmm. is anything but committed to you, you might be anxious about that when they're spending time with other people. Right. So I think asking yourself, What about the current setup is my anxiety and this secondary distress versus what about it is this is actually creating a problem in our relationship. That's a way that you can start to get at how much is okay. And I I really wish that I had a more concrete benchmark for people. And I just don't. (laughs) <laughs> That's
0: okay, and I I really want everyone listening because I'm loving this concept. I feel like I've heard something like this, but never in the exact way you're describing it. So I really love how simple this feels of the primary versus the secondary pain, and this is really resonating with me especially. And so I know others will too. I think that honestly, this whole topic of healthy versus unhealthy, this is such a big piece of it to explore because we're exploring the question of, well, how do I know if something's healthy or unhealthy, if I'm seeing conflicting information or if I'm maybe the type of person that overthinks these things. And this question or this exercise is such a good way for you to build that self-trust within yourself of parsing out what advice might actually feel relevant to you because it actually is painful in the relationship and there's actually things that you feel like you're overly compromising on versus, oh, no, I'm actually just stuck in a comparison mode because on social media, it looks like everyone is traveling all the time, having sex every day, and everyone else looks happier than I do. And so I'm just coming from that lens of shame or comparison and feeling like I'm not good enough.
1: Right, right.
0: So thank you for bringing that into the conversation. Before we kind of close the loop on, healthy versus unhealthy dynamics. I mean, I I really want people to hear what we just said, because that's a tool they can take away. But is there anything else you want to add either from the side of things to kind of pay attention to in a healthy situation or things to be mindful of that could be unhealthy patterns that you just feel is worth bringing into the conversation.
1: Yeah, I think ask yourself, do I feel like I can be me in this relationship? Do I feel like I have to fundamentally change something about who I am in order for this relationship to work well?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because I'm gonna tell you, there is an expiration date on changing yourself for someone else. Mm -hmm. It doesn't last. The toll that it takes on you to have to fundamentally change who you are to be able to make a relationship work is immense. And sometimes people do it for years. Mm -hmm. They might kind of wake up and look in the mirror and not recognize who they see anymore. And I'm telling you that no relationship is worth fundamentally changing the essence of who you are. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this is very different from working on yourself, improving something about yourself, improving your communication style, improving your your health and wellness for the betterment of your relationships. All those things are great.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: I think folks out there, they're very keen. They're very insightful. You know, when you're doing something that betrays yourself, mm-hmm. you might not have the words for it, but you can identify the feeling at your core that you are betraying yourself. Yeah. And If you feel that feeling that my friend is a really important information to pay attention to Mm -hmm. that is your inner core saying, please take better care of me than you're Mm -hmm. taking care of me right now. And so that I think is a feeling to pay attention to um, because I want for folks, everybody to be in relationships where who they are and the essence of who they are is enough And is acceptable in the relationship.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. I'd love to explore maybe very quickly just like two potentially different examples of that happening, like one that could be a little healthier versus unhealthier. What I'm hearing you say is if you have to majorly sacrifice who you are for Mm -hmm. this relationship, then that can be really important to note. So what I heard in that could be something like you absolutely love to play sports With your friends and then your partners, like you don't, you shouldn't do that anymore. Like there's no more time for that. You can't do that for some reason. Like if basically they're saying you have to change this to be with me, that would be something worth being mindful of. Does that feel like true to what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, look, if there's something you're doing that's unhealthy, and your partner says you would need to change that in order to be with me, like let's take for example drinking behavior. Mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable with the amount that you drink. That's kind of a deal breaker for me. You know, drinking five times a week is not something that I want to be exposed to or have in my life. Mm -hmm. And so you can do that, but that's that's not going to work for me in this relationship, right? I get it. I get it. But if it's something that is really a healthy, proper outlet, um, telling your partner that they can't do that is... Very controlling. For sure, I see this sometimes is when people are picking careers.
0: Mm.
1: Um, You know, someone might get together with someone who's a creative, who's or who's an artist, and there's a change process that happens where that person is sometimes, I don't know, pressured into giving up that because of their partner's needs, wanting them to make more money, wanting them Mm. to have something more reliable and that's more stable. And look, there's nothing wrong with changing how you envision your life and and creating different priorities for yourself. Maybe as you get older having more financial stability is a bigger value for you than it might have been earlier. But if you're really noticing that I have to change this about myself for my partner, I cannot be in this creative career. I cannot do the thing that I want to do with my life because my partner doesn't prove or want something different for for their life, that's time to really start thinking about issues of compatibility.
0: Yeah, I love you just gave kind of that a little window into what I was going to give as the second example, which is like, it's okay to change what you might have expected for yourself. Because for example, like, if you would have asked me before I met Nate, like, do you like English Premier League soccer, football, whatever you call it, or like, are you going to spend your time on Sundays, like watching it and actually enjoying it? I would have been like, no, like, that's, I don't like that stuff. And then because Nate likes that, I've now become more, I feel like I'm more focused on sporty stuff, which I actually have never been against, but it's not necessarily something I would have been hardcore into. So that was like the second example I wanted to give, which is maybe you didn't imagine something playing out the way it would because you met this person who sees the world differently than you do and that's not necessarily betraying yourself if you're changing or evolving even if that might look different than the version that a past you dreamed of and I think sometimes people get hung up on that a lot of my clients do they're like well maybe this wasn't exactly how I envisioned life playing out and I think that can hold us back in some ways, especially if there's something to benefit from the new change.
1: Absolutely. There are so many ways that I'm a different person with different interests because of my relationship. And that's wonderful. Relationships are, you know, such tools for us for evolution. That's awesome. But if you're feeling like the way that you have changed has betrayed yourself, that's the problem. Getting to watching, you know, English premier league soccer okay. is not something that you grapple with and feel like you are betraying yourself over. Yeah. Um, But I'm sure we could come up with examples that would feel like this is not who I am. I am putting on a false front. I can't keep this up. The amount of energy that it takes to try to force the square peg into the circle hole is just too demanding. And people know. I trust the audience out there. You know what it feels like on the inside when you're doing something that's not true to who you are.
0: Yeah. I agree. And I feel like, yeah, my example may have been a little trivial, but I think it was helpful to at least explore both of those categories. So thank you for going there. Since we're almost at time, there's just a couple final questions. One question I ask all my guests, just because this is the You Love and You Learn podcast. What is one thing you have learned about
1: love that you would want to leave listeners with? I have learned that you should never beg someone to love you. Mm. You should never be in a relationship where you feel like you have to claw for someone's commitment, attention, love, or respect, that there is somebody out there, I promise, who you will not have to work hard to get, mm-hmm. that who will just show up and want to be there with you and do what it takes to stay there with you without you having to force it.
0: Mm, I love that. And by forcing it, you mean forcing their love for you. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's such a powerful reminder. And I couldn't agree more. I'm glad you brought that in. How can people stay connected with you if they're enjoying what you shared today and want to follow you or on social media or check out your website or anything like that?
1: Oh, I would love that so much. Yeah. So my my Instagram handle is at Dr. Molly Burritz, D-R-M-O-L-L-Y-B-U-R-R-E-T-S. I post there pretty frequently. By the time this podcast airs, I'm gonna have a new baby. So if you don't see me every day on social media, I'll be back soon. Um, I'm just taking care of something that's really important to me and really exciting for me um, as my family grows. But I love chatting with my audience there. I go on stories. I'll do ask me anything, and you can submit your questions and I'll respond right to you. Um, You can also check out my website, drmollyburitz.com. If you're in the state of California, um, there's a potential that we could work in a therapeutic relationship together. If you're not in the state of California, kind of stay tuned because I post information there about coaching and retreats and intensives that can be available to anyone no matter where you live. So that's a good way to sign up for my newsletter and get the updates.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Molly. It was a pleasure having this chat with you. And I definitely want to do a part two at some point once you are back in the swing of things, maybe later this year, towards the end of year, or start of next year, because I do think the abuse conversation, it's one that I don't feel that I want to be the one speaking to. And so I'd love to have someone whose work is more specialized in this understanding. So I will reach out and coordinate that with you. <laughs>
1: I'll look forward to that, Sarah. Thank you for everything that you do. I know there's so many people out there that really need you and that you bring so much richness to their life. So thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I received the compliment (laughs) and congrats on your growing family. And I'm just very excited as well that you get to spend some time taking care of the thing that you love. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Talk to everyone soon. Thank you so much for listening to the you Love and You Learn podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, it would mean the absolute world to me if you could rate and review the podcast because the more ratings and reviews there are, the more people that can hear this message and it's really important to me to get this message out to the world and to create a space where people can learn about love and relationships in a way that is not judgmental, in a way that helps them expand their perspective from the cultural narratives that we've heard and seen in the movies and in Hollywood and the media and the more ratings and reviews that are there the more people that can hear this message. So thank you again so much. It really means the world to me that you are listening and see you in the next episode.